This is Tripwire Week in Review for week ending April 7th, 2023. I'm Martha Kocher with Trep, a data modeling and analytics firm for the CMBS commercial real estate and CLO markets. I'm with Lonnie Hendry, head of Siri and advisory services and Stephen Bushbaum, director of research. This week with the urgency of the bank concerns calmed for now, the spotlight has turned to jobs and economic data. Across the board, signs of weakening, private sector jobs were down 40% in March, job openings dropped below 10 million, and new jobless claims came in higher than expected with some big revisions to previous claims. In other data, manufacturing contracted, factory orders fell, and services lost momentum. Lonnie, the monthly jobs number is out tomorrow, and investors are watching for confirmation that the Fed's medicine is working. Yeah, Martha, we've been hearing from the Fed for the last couple of months that jobs are going to be the, the bellwether that they're looking at. And it seems like we might be getting some of that weakening in the jobs market that they've been hoping for based on their you know most recent increases in rates. So I know we have the monthly jobs report tomorrow, but there's definitely some initial signs that the labor market is starting to uh, be hit a little bit. So private sector hiring slowed last month. So private sector jobs rose by 145,000 in March, which was down 40% from the headline number of 261 in February, according to ADP. Uh, this was below the consensus estimates of 210,000, sharply down from Q1 22. We have some insight on that uh, when we dig a little deeper here in a moment. But it's interesting, if you look at pay growth, it's not just jobs. We're starting to see a little bit of a deceleration in pay growth. So whether you're somebody that stayed at your job or changed jobs, uh, we're starting to see a little bit of a retrenchment there. So for people that have stayed in their existing jobs, year-over-year gains fell by about 7%, uh, 6.9% to be exact, down from 7.2% year-over-year. And then for job changers, pay growth was 14.2%, which was down slightly from 14.4% the previous year. So you're starting to see a little bit of cooling in terms of that competitive hiring environment that we've seen for the last year plus. And ADP actually was quoted as saying a few things that were of interest this week. Employers are pulling back from a year of strong hiring and pay growth after a three-month plateau, which is inching us down. And interestingly enough, if you dig a little deeper, job growth was almost evenly split between services and goods producing firms. So 75K for the services side, 70K for the goods producing firms which is not a normal occurrence, usually services tend to take the lead. If we look at the JOLTS numbers, so job openings, you mentioned this on the lead-in, they declined to about 9.93 million in February, which is the first time since May of 21 that vacancies have been under 10 million. And that was according to the Labor Department reporting. Um, and then jobless claims, really interesting on this, came in above the consensus forecast, uh, 228,000 versus a forecast of about 200,000. But what's probably of maybe even more interest is that the prior week's numbers were revised. So we need some mystery music, Haley. The mystery of the very low claims reported, 228 is higher, but Labor Department updated its methodology to adjust the claims. And that's due to a really large influx of jobless claims that were filed during the pandemic. So if you remember back to 2020, as many as 6 million people had filed unemployment claims in March of 2020, which, you know, really distorted the math over the last two weeks in the numbers. So last week's claims were revised up 
from 198 to 246, which is almost 50,000 number increase or about a 24% increase. Um, so going forward, we should see those numbers, you know, adjusted out. But it makes me wonder, I guess, if those numbers have been off for so long and needed to be adjusted, what other numbers related to the economy are we looking at that maybe aren't 100% up to stuff? So I think one thing that will be really interesting to watch going forward with the jobs numbers, certainly on the unemployment rate side, if we think back to when the job cut announcements started ramping up last year, they started around June and really picked up speed in the fall. And just talking to various people and, and hearing anecdotally the, the severance packages that have been given out, I think part of the enigma that had us scratching our heads with the data is you have a, a lot of folks that have gotten six months, a year, in some cases, even more severance. And so they're not having to re-enter the, the job market, look for work as actively. So I think as the year presses on, we'll get some stabilization in these funky time series econometrics, right? That, that spike from the COVID and the decay afterward will finally start to normalize, stabilize. But we should start seeing, in theory, a creep up in that unemployment rate as folks re-enter the job market are more actively looking. And I think an important element for me in the, the data so far this week was the jolts number, the job openings coming down so strongly, right? I, I think it was the CEO of Zip Recruiter mentioned, this might've been about a, a month or two ago, that they were really questioning how many employers with these jobs posted were actively you know, willing to hire. They might've had the job posted, but were they actually committed to, to hiring somebody to fill that spot? And maybe that's what we're kind of seeing work through now is those job postings getting, getting pulled. So we'll see what the jobs number looks like tomorrow. But for now, the Fed speak has been very consistent and sticking to the script of moving rates higher. Yeah, so it's really interesting. Um, if you look at Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester, on Wednesday, she predicted that rates will need to move higher to put inflation on a sustained downward projection to the 2%, keep inflation expectations anchored, monetary policy, you know, the script. She was following the script. If you look at, at Bullard out of St. Louis, effectively the same thing, said steps taken to ease financial strains were working and the central bank should keep raising interest rates to fight high inflation. In addition to these uh, Fed presidents following the script, you know, it's interesting for us to take a look at and say there's there's definitely some things in the macro environment that could, you know, maybe change some of their thought process. And so OPEC's decision to cut oil production, you know, was an unpleasant surprise. And so for Bullard, this really kind of reinforces his, his opinion. He says that... Um, it's going to have an upward effect on oil prices, complicate the, their efforts, and that it's hard to track exactly because oil prices fluctuate around. Um, and so it may actually feed into inflation and cause a little more consternation for the Fed in terms of keeping rates high. So it'll be interesting to see crude oil hasn't seen a huge spike thus far, continues to hover around $80 a barrel. So not much change after the big gains to start the week. Um, but at the same time, if you look at gas prices at the pump, they've actually reached a five-month high, surpassing $3.50 a gallon. That's according to AAA. Um, and I think we'd be short-sighted to think that this uh, supply reduction from OPEC is not going to have upward pressure on pricing of, of oil in the U.S. I think it's definitely going to. Yeah, so I think this plays really well into the book of 
it's another supply side shock. And what we keep hearing out of economists is as those supply side shocks work their way through the system and it's back to normal economics as it is, really, do we need to keep pressing so hard on the rate hikes? Because we should be moving away from, well, the risk of doing too little outweighs the risk of doing too much. And it's funny how Loretta Mester and Bullard were, were very much hesitant or I'm sure in Bullard's case would push back on any of the press that would ask, well, do you see this, this narrative changing? And now maybe there is more of a risk of doing too much and over tightening and throwing the economy into a recession. They were really hesitant to have any sort of a dovish pivot in their tone and were sticking to the script. But I, I just can't help but hear that if I had to develop an index for this, I'd call it the frustration index. There's a frustration sentiment brewing out there right, of, of economists and even some former Fed um, members saying, well, you can't you know, really keep your old playbook in today's environment with remote work, with the supply side shocks being what they are. You kind of have to step back and let the lags work through. So it's, it's interesting right now, if you look at the CME group FedWatch tool, it's almost an even split. It's a little bit above a 50% chance the Fed will pause in May, but it's it's almost a coin flip right now. Yeah, I think at one point this last week, it was up to about 70% that there was going to be a hike. And according to Deutsche Bank's Jim Reed, as of this recording, is about 47%. So there's definitely been a little bit of sentiment change from their perspective in terms of what the Fed's next move might be. We're only at the beginning of the earnings season for this quarter, but we're all going to be watching to see some leading indicators of what's happening. And, and we've heard some news from Costco this week about their March sales. Yeah, it's really interesting. We're starting to see, you know, as Stephen mentioned, some of these pressures played out in the marketplace. So Costco, you know, had same store sales decline in March. This was the first decline since April of 2020, and April of 2020 was obvious given the lockdown and people not shopping. On that news, the stock actually was down about 2%. And so if you look at it, just to quantify, it's about 1.1% decrease in same-store sales in March, which was down from February, which had a 3.5% increase. Costco is kind of a bellwether in the, in the sense of, you know, a lot of people shop there for a myriad of goods. They sell home furnishing, toys, seasonal products, food, et cetera. And it seems like the, the drop was definitely in the discretionary items, according to the company. So they said there was a market uh, drop in home furnishings, toys, seasonal products. So maybe the consumer starting to pull back a little bit. And Costco, which is, you know, one of those bulk purchase type of value plays uh, from a consumer perspective, would probably be one of the first to see, you know, the consumers start to tighten their belts some. Walmart also, their CEO came out and said they expect inflation to be more normalized in 24, and that the supply chain issues that have plagued them and other retailers, inventory is expected to be back towards historical norms that the supply chain stuff had been remedied. You know, they don't feel that they're in the same challenging conditions that they were in the previous year. So hopefully we'll see some normalization on the supply side with retailers at 24, but unfortunately for them, it might be uh, coinciding with consumers really pulling back on the spending side. 
One data point that really shows how much consumers have pulled back is the McDonald's shutdown that was announced this week of closing their offices as it prepared for layoffs between Monday and Wednesday. That was that was really a big one for me. Because if we think back to the narrative we got in third, fourth quarter earnings, McDonald's actually noted that they had some higher end customers that were trading down and eating fast food more than they were. But now even McDonald's is not immune to the uh, pivoting consumer and pulling back. So they employ about 150,000 plus corporate office and restaurants. And they've warned that higher input costs will mean that 2023 operating margins could fall well below an analyst consensus estimates. And so they're reviewing corporate staffing levels as part of its business strategy and going into cost control mode like the rest of corporate America right now, it seems. Hey, if this means that I could get into a Chick-fil-A at some point this year without having to sit through a 25-minute line, I'm okay with that. So the other story that we saw this week that was a, a big announcement was BlackRock's going to be handling the sale of $114 billion in securities that were previous, previously held by the failed bank Signature and Silicon Valley. So that's uh, that's something that a lot of people are watching. Yes, this is really similar to what happened with AIG and how that portfolio was liquidated. So you have a custodian that takes over the portfolio and has to work through it. So First Citizens Bank is buying Silicon Valley's deposits and loans at a sizable discount. New York Community Bank Corp is buying signatures deposits, some of its loans, but the acquirers had rejected the lender's securities portfolios because they would have had to realize a loss due to the elevated rates. So these were treasuries, mortgage-backed securities, both commercial and residential, that had been purchased when rates were 2 3%, maybe even some at max 4% yield. So now with rates pushing up above 4%, 5% discount rate on some of these securities, the value drops and they'd have to realize a loss. And so the concern would be if, say, BlackRock hadn't taken over these portfolios and if the institutions were still operating, trying to flush this much in securities through the market in a short period of time would be a distressed sale, push asset, asset values down below equilibrium. So actually personally glad to see that BlackRock will be handling the sale because they have a very sophisticated valuation approach, proprietary modeling software. And so they know the intrinsic value of these securities and will effectively have a pecking order that they'll work through depending on market conditions. And so they're going to try and execute at a price neutral impact. They're not really going to care about trying to make an extra dollar. They're really more focused on trying to avoid losing dollars. And so I think they're very well positioned to execute this in a patient, tactical manner with what we all hope will be minimal impact to securities values. Because as we'll talk about later on the podcast, we have seen spreads, certainly in, in CMDS space, move out significantly wider. So the last thing market participants want is selling pressure in the market that can cause spreads to go even wider, prices to go down further, and us to have that much more of a delay into rebuilding the securitization pipeline. Yeah, if you look at the way BlackRock has positioned this, I think they've said the term gradual and orderly in terms of how they plan to dispose of these, which, you know, they're situated in a way that allows for that. There's been no timeline given for the sales from the FDIC, but just expecting logic and practical considerations. It's not like they're going to hold on to these indefinitely. So I think there'll be an impetus to try to get these sold. 
And it's really interesting for people that have been in the market, you know, pricing CRE loans. You know, there was a sigh of relief, I think, in the, some form of uh, BlackRock being awarded this, because if you had taken Signature's portfolio, try to dispose of those or bring those to market all at once, that speed and markdown valuation, et cetera, would have really set off a downward spiral. And we would have seen fire sales across the uh, spectrum. And so, you know, this is a much more orderly process that should allow for, as you mentioned, Stephen, maybe market neutral type of positioning or whatever, and definitely better than what a fire sale would have been. So, you know, in the signature portfolio, primarily commercial real estate loans, commercial loans, and small pool of single family residential loans. CRE loans have a pretty high concentration of multifamily properties, primarily in New York City. Um, there's been a lot of discussion around them on this podcast and other articles over the last few months. So we'll keep an eye on this as it continues to progress and as we get some insight into how that has been, you know, transacted or if there's been deals done, we'll certainly cover them on our banking monitor as well. And just to give a quick back of the envelope idea of what kind of volumes we're talking about here. On an average week, we might see 300 to 600 million in CMBS trade. So if we assume maybe about 10% of this portfolio was CMBS, then let's call it $14 billion. So if BlackRock is trying to liquidate this, when market volume is, CMBS market volume is 300 to 600 million a week and trying not to move the needle, you can see how, how many weeks it's going to take to work through this portfolio. It will take some time. And we've been talking for some time now about tightening of conditions and we're seeing it across the board in terms of different types of lending. And one of the things we saw was a, a report or a survey that was done by the Dallas Fed of their regional banks, and it was very insightful. Yeah, I'm thankful that we're finally getting to talk about credit tightening and not just my pants being too tight. <laughs> but so the Dallas Fed, uh, this survey had 71 banks in Texas in the survey, giving some indication of what's happening in the bank lending markets. and. It's really interesting. I don't think it comes as a shock, but the survey uh, revealed that lending conditions and terms for loans had tightened sharply with uh, market rises in loan pricing. So with the fallout from Silicon Valley Bank and everything that ensued after that, you've definitely seen banks take a much more tepid approach to their lending and definitely price them accordingly based on the risk. And if you look at loan demand, loan demands declined for the fifth consecutive period. Loan volumes are down significantly, and this was due mostly to consumer loan contraction. Non-performance on loans increased slightly. It's interesting, though, credit standards and terms tightened sharply, and market increases in loan prices were, were noted. So, you know, I would say if you do this survey in a few months, this might become the new norm in terms of what we're considered tight today, because everyone is going to be, you know, Manis has talked about this in our TREP 180. We've talked about this on a couple of our other publications in terms of people just trying to hoard deposits. They're only making conservative loans that make uh, a lot of sense. I actually went to lunch with a local banker yesterday, and it was really interesting. He had said that, you know, obviously they were much more conservative now than they were a few months ago for obvious reasons, but he was getting a lot of inquiries from folks that traditionally were not looking for community bank money to make loans on deals that would generally have gone somewhere else for financing. And so if you take that, I mean, you know, his, his thought was he'd seen more kind of outside inquiries in the last two weeks than he had seen over the last two years. 
if that tells you anything, it's not just the community banks that are really tightening their belt. I think it's pretty much everyone across the lending spectrum that's saying we're not putting money out right now unless it checks certain boxes. Yeah, there's a lot of time left in the year. So I imagine being where we are with so much uncertainty in the, the credit tightening cycle and still some concerns about the banking sector as a whole. I imagine there's a lot of portfolio lenders sitting out there thinking, why would I go out the curve on credit when I can pick my spots now and reserve some some dry lending powder later in the year when I might be able to, to originate some even better terms? Yeah. So there were a couple of questions in the survey that we had some uh, responses to. One was on total loans over the past six weeks, how have the following changed? And they were looking at loan volume, loan demand, non-performing loans, and loan pricing. Um, and you saw some significant movement across loan volume and loan demand. You know, as we mentioned, uptick in non-performing loans, but not as dramatic. And then a couple of the other questions over the past six weeks, how have the following changed on the commercial real estate loans? And loan volume was down. Current index was negative 20.9 compared to previous at negative 14. And if you looked at uh, credit standards and terms, you saw a significant tightening there, as we mentioned before. We're going to have to kind of take a wait and see approach in terms of how long this lasts. But we put out a couple of reports and we've been quoted in multiple publications over the last few weeks using some of our internal reporting of uh, the banking crisis and the data that, that can be attributed to that. And so one of those is that in our research, commercial real estate loans, which we're estimating account for about 43% of small bank loans in the U.S., would be most impacted if uh, banks continue to rein in lending. So it looks like regional and community banks, um, this is according to research that we put out, um, provide the lion's share of commercial real estate lending uh, with about $2 trillion in outstanding loans, which is more than double, you know, the just under $1 trillion held by the big banks. And there's about $270 billion of those commercial mortgages held by banks that are scheduled to mature this year, which is also a record level. So, you know, it sounds like a broken record every week, but we're seeing a ton of maturities coming across the finish line right when credit's tightening and liquidity's drying up. And so, you know, we don't have the answers, but these surveys don't paint a really great picture for the next 9, 12, 18 months as you extrapolate it out. Yeah, there's still a lot of runway left to see exactly where things head from here. So I think, honestly, from where I sit, the best outcome for what you see near term is kicking the can down the road and extend and pretend, which was the game that was played on on maturing loans that were coming due in uh, 2009, 10, 11, that couldn't find a home to refinance was the the servicer just said, well, we'll, we'll give you a one to three year extension so long as you can put up half half a point or 1% up front, uh, pay down the loan, set aside some reserves and, and make it through this rough patch. But the question is, first, do the borrowers have the cash to do that? And then second, do they have the really the belief that this asset is going to be worth that cash today? Is that a positive NPV decision to, to stick with it? Fortunately, in some respects, what is a good thing is a lot of these bank loans are recourse loans. So the borrower has a little bit more incentive to stick with it than say if it was a non-recourse debt where the borrower can truly just hand back the keys, walk away. And sure, it's a derogatory mark on their, their professional resume, so to speak. But as we've seen from recovering from 2008, that doesn't mean that lenders will be unwilling to to lend again. It's just the nature of the game. And of course, we've been talking about this as well, but we, we have the numbers based on a report that 
our sister company, CRE Direct Publish, and it's CMBS issuance, which has uh, hit a really new record uh, since uh, going back to 2012. So on a year-over-year basis, first quarter issuance was down just a hair under 80%. We only saw a total of almost $6 billion in deals priced. So that was a 12% decline relative to fourth quarter 2022. We have to go back to the first quarter of 2012 as the economy was pushing out of the the Great Financial Crisis or GFC to see that kind of lackluster volume. So this is really a double whammy. We have the increasing interest rates that have just absolutely wrecked issuers' ability to profitly originate loans. And then on top of that, not only is the treasury increased, but also the risk premium or the, the bond spread has increased. So these two things working against them are, are very, very detrimental to the, the pipeline building process. So we saw only four conduit deals price during the first quarter. Two are backed solely by loans with five-year terms. So shortening up the, the duration on the loans has been one of the strategies to try and counter the higher interest rate environment of, of well, it might cost you a lot today in interest, uh, but if you shorten it up to fighters, maybe you can refinance if you're expecting interest rates to go down. Single borrower transactions plunged in volume. There are only six deals totaling 2.7 billion from that was uh, 26 deals totaling 18.6 billion a year ago. So a massive decrease. Uh, collateralized loan obligation market basically ground to a halt. Only deal two deals totaling 1.12 billion were issued during the first quarter. During last year's first quarter, we saw 13 deals price for a total of 15.27 billion issued. I think in each of those instances, Stephen, uh, there are downstream implications from that because for every one of those new origination numbers that are significantly less than what they were a year ago. Those are properties that haven't refinanced or haven't been acquired that are just sitting in whatever existing loan that they have, um, where over the last several years, those loans were trading in and out and that the marketplace was very active and deals were being done. Like I think what we're seeing here, you pointed out is 12% less than the fourth quarter in terms of issuance. But if you look at the same first quarter year over year, it's down 79%. So it's almost like the headline shouldn't be CMBS issuance. It should be CMBS non-issuance uh, because that's really where we're at in the market cycle at this point. That's right. And if we want to talk about loan pricing, the AAA tranche constitutes the majority of bonds issued, generally speaking, for CMBS. And so the price execution you get on those AAA securities is a big driver of the securitization economics. And so the lower the spread or the, the tighter those bond spreads, the more profitable or easier it is to securitize loans. So last week we released our delinquency report and we have a follow-up to that. The biggest delinquency moves by state and it focuses on a couple of property sectors. Yes, yeah, some of the, the largest moves by state now, fair warning before we dive into these numbers is that if we look if we're looking at the the relative delinquency rate increase, what we will see here in just a moment is that these do tend to be smaller markets where it only takes one or two loans becoming delinquent to move the needle. But that, that doesn't mean there's some really interesting credit stories behind behind the numbers. What we saw on overall delinquency rate in the CMBS market was we actually got a three basis point decrease. We dropped to 3.09% in March from 3.12% in February. So we had a slight improvement. However, 
this is no shocker here, the one property type that did see a massive increase was office with a 22 basis point uptick in its delinquency rate to 2.61% from 2.38% in February. So the, the two property sectors that we highlight in these largest movers delinquency report are office and lodging. So lodging is an interesting one because it did see a four basis point decrease in its delinquency rate. So it dropped down to 4.41% from 4.45. But we did see a couple of states with large month over month increases in the lodging delinquency rate. So the top two, interestingly enough, are the recently tornado hit Mississippi and Alabama with the JAGR hotel portfolio. That's a $28.8 million loan that turned to 30 plus days delinquent in March. What I think will be curious to watch here for the hotel delinquency rates in Mississippi and Alabama is if these properties were not impacted by the tornadoes, what you do tend to see happen following these national disasters is a, a temporary boost in hotel occupancy if those, these hotels have close enough proximity to the impacted areas because you have displaced families and aid workers that are having to come in and rebuild and they need lodging. And so we might actually get a little bit of cash flow reprieve for these delinquent lodging loans in Mississippi and Alabama. Moving on to the office sector, the state with the largest relative increase in its delinquency rate is Colorado. So it went from in February, just under a 12% delinquency rate to in March, it moved up to, I'm just going to round it up to 18%. So it's a 6.3% increase. And that was driven by one large loan primarily, Republic Plaza. That's $134 million office property in Denver, Colorado. Yes, if you'd like a copy of Emily's report, just email us at podcast.trep.com and we'll send you the report so you can see the top five states, um, you know, with the largest increase across lodging and office assets. If you were a TREP subscriber, we send out our trading alerts and other things for subscribers where you would have seen or heard about those potential lease expirations or space being vacated, you know, much more timely than us reporting on it today. So if you're not a TREP subscriber, you should be because that type of intel is provided on a daily basis by our research team. We go into the weeds so you don't have to. <laughs> nice. So we will never get through all the stories we still have in property sectors, but we've got a good number and many of them are either uh, trading alerts or flashes that we've put out for various stories and many of them are in office. So we're going to try to get through several of these and we'll see where we end up. Yeah, so I'm going to play the role of Manus today. I've never seen anyone speak as fast with as many numbers and decimal places as Manus is able to on these stories. But we'll start off with Office. Uh, and quite honestly, this is a pretty nice segue. Office Depot completed the sale of its corporate headquarters in Boca Raton for about $104 million. So this sale was first announced in August of 22, but there was no sales price uh, with part of with that announcement. So now we know that the asset actually traded at about 104 million. What's interesting about this is that when this building was acquired previous to this most recent sale in 2017, the property was acquired for about 132 million. So this is another one of those stories where large corporate headquarters trades for something less than it traded for just a few years ago. And so I think uh, this is uh, you know, being added to that long list of properties that fit that bill. 
So a couple of other nuggets on the Office Depot sale. The building was actually about 650,000 square feet. And something I found interesting on this deal, as we mentioned, it sold for less in this most recent trade than previously, but this is in Florida, in Boca Raton, where if you look at all of the macro data, you know, it was really benefited from netted migration. Florida has been, you know, kind of in the top five uh, class for any type of economic news, especially real estate related over the last several years. So, you know, a, a building this size in a market that generally has been perceived as growing, um, maybe this has some broader implications outside of just this one building. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, Stephen. So this is definitely a big win, but maybe not that surprising as we've we've had the positive migration into Miami. Takeaway is that's good to see that there's still capital out there for for deals with strong fundamentals, markets that have certainly some some positives going for them. Um, the question is, well, we know this this deal was probably negotiated a couple months ago. So if this deal was at the table today, would would it still get done at the the same terms? We had a trading alert, as Martha mentioned, a lot of really good activity this week in terms of our insights. Uh, this is for a big 2013 mall loan that was refinanced. According to uh, Chattanooga Times Free Press, CBL closed $148 million loan to refinance the Friendly Center at the shops at Friendly Center in Greensboro, North Carolina. A lot of details here that we had put out on the trading alert, but this was one that we weren't sure was going to get uh, refinanced. And uh, we did get confirmation that that refinance had been uh, taken care of. The next story comes to us from Cincinnati Business Courier. Alta Fiber, the successor to Cincinnati Bell, will be consolidating its offices from seven floors down to two at the Atrium 2 property in Cincinnati. This is a 655,000 square foot office. And Cincinnati Bell, now Alta Fiber, is listed as the top tenant with about 36% of leased space that goes until 2030. So the prospectus did note that Cincinnati Bell has the right to terminate about 40,000 square feet of its lease. So in the first nine months of 2022, this $52.8 million loan had a debt coverage ratio of roughly 1.70, 1.7 times, and occupancy was 92%. So not the most detrimental hit from this credit story, but certainly crabgrass nonetheless. So Lonnie, we probably don't have time to dig into the details of some of the other stories we have, but we can probably cover the headlines of what we've covered. Yeah, so there are definitely several headlines here. We'll kind of run through them quickly. Roku taking a charge off to reduce their office footprint. So they're taking a charge somewhere between 30 and $35 million to shed leases and lay off workers. We put out another trading alert this week. Former delinquent private label LA apartment portfolio was sold. Large portfolio with about 1,037 units in downtown LA. We had a, a TREP flash, another tech firm to take charge to reduce office space. This was a story that was in the Portland Business Journal about software maker New Relic, which has announced plans to significantly you know, cut down on its global office footprint. And then a quick hit, State Farm is looking to sublease about 400,000 square foot of its Richardson, Texas headquarters. So that was a build to suit, you know, owner-occupied deal that came online in 2016. And they're putting about 400,000 square foot up for sublease. So we'll see if that gets absorbed. 
So we'll transition now. We have a couple of positive or green shoots for uh, for the office sector this week, and then we'll finish up the office sector with a little bit more crabgrass. But on the positive side, uh, the Atlantic Council, which uh, is you know billed as a nonpartisan think tank, uh, just signed about an 80,000 square foot lease at the ALEC, which is a 175,000 square foot building in DC's Franklin Square neighborhood. So we've had multiple stories over the last couple of months that were negative in the DC area, specifically for office. So it's great to see an 80,000 square foot lease get done. Uh, Waymo uh, has uh, the, the self-driving car company has taken on about 78,000 square foot in downtown San Francisco. And so that's really great. That was at 555 Market Street. We said we were going to have a few uh, green shoots. Now we're back to the crabgrass. Crane Chicago, this is according to Danny Ecker, who we highlight multiple times on the pod over the last couple of months. Uh, the Schomburg office building hits the market, and this is right as Experience slashes its footprint. Experience looking to cut its workforce in the building by more than 80% is moving out of its office building in the northwest suburb. And so this is not great news when you're trying to take the building to market for sale, especially given all of the availability in that Chicago region. Um, so we'll see what happens to that building, but I would assume pricing guidance is down, given uh, where it's at in the market now. A couple of other additional uh, crabgrass stories might get a little bit into these. The Houston Business Journal, this is from Jeff Jeffrey. New York-based Sovereign Partners just paid about $83 million to buy the San Felipe Plaza building, which is located at 5847 San Felipe in Houston. Um, in 2005, that building had traded to Thomas Properties Group for about $157 million. And that's a building that's just about 960,000 square foot. So Stephen, you know, this property traded in 2005, just before we started seeing prices fall off for the GFC, but to have something sell in 2023 at 82.8 million is not going to be a good feeling. No, no, that's that's the pain trade right there. And you're seeing this, you know, over and over again. Investors just really willing to take steep, steep discounts at the current point in time actually begs the question: how much more pain is there to come in this sector? Turning back to the frustration index, right? This is another frustration signal that tells you. Gosh, where is the office sector headed from here? Prices are down 20, 30%. Where are we going to retrench? Here's a good little tidbit for you. Houston actually has the highest delinquency rate for CRE CLO office loans at just over 60%. So if that's any indication of how Houston office is doing right now, I, I think this, this price kind of makes sense. I think in this instance, Houston is one of those markets where you can have a property sell for pennies on the dollar and then one right down the street sell for a new record price. So, you know, we've we talked a little bit about Greenway Plaza and some of the challenges there. I know there's a couple of those buildings in that general vicinity that are coming online. So, you know, we'll see if this is a trend or if this is kind of a one-off. That market is just really, really hard to, you know, isolate because there's so much diversity in terms of no zoning, construction, et cetera, et cetera. We'll finish up here with uh, with our last crab story. This is from the Commercial Observer and Greg Cornfield. Union Bank Plaza Tower, this is in downtown LA, was recently sold for what uh, is being called a big discount. It was uh, sold to Waterbridge Capital. And what's really interesting here is that this deal had been under contract for some time, but 
continued to be amended on the contract side, amended, um, and then it finally came in and sold at a fairly significant haircut from what it was even originally uh, under contract for. So according to reports, it closed at about 105 to 110 million. And this was one of the last buildings out of uh, KBS REIT that was acquired from Heinz for about 208 million back in 2010. So not a great story for the closing out of that fund, but it looks like they finally got it off the books. And for Waterbridge, maybe they got a building that has some potential upside if they could figure out how to get it retenanted and how to get that occupancy up. And I believe both those stories were featured in our client, what we're watching, TREP 180. So if you are a client, you probably saw a heads up about a week ago on those two stories. And if uh, you wanted any more detail on some of the stories that uh, Stephen or Lonnie mentioned, give us a shout and we'll send you the information because I know we uh, probably summarized a lot of the stuff faster than normal. We do have one hotel story. So we do. And this is from the Commercial Observer's uh, Julia Ekinson, uh, Pebblebrook Hotel Trust sold the historic Colonnade Hotel. This is down in Coral Gables. Um, according to an SEC filing, the property traded for $63 million. This is a property built in 1926, 157 rooms, outdoor pool, 34,000 square foot of event space. So another transaction in the hotel sector. We've seen some pretty good news across the hotel marketplace. And so it's good to see, you know, these properties that have some historic value getting traded at rates that, you know, aren't too far off the mark there. So good news for, for Pebblebrook and uh, hopefully... Colonnade Hotels is able to continue its successful run. And shout outs. We had a number of people reach out about our bank data. Matt M, Lisa, Bobby, Buckley P, Leander, Cannon G, Christy, John T, Eric G, Nick M, Jason C, and Michael D. Susie sent us a shout out from her client in Minneapolis, Nick T. So a shout out to him. And Aaron sent us one from Tyrone T from Columbia Business School. A number of Twitter shout outs, JMU on Twitter, starting out the week with the analysis is helpful and sobering. Nathan on Twitter, interesting crabgrass on some of the comments we made about Fisher Investments. Two listeners from the UK reached out to us, giving us what was happening on their side of the pond. So that was very helpful and insightful. And Manis gives a shout out to Joel and Dave from Georgia. So for those who are probably out there, maybe golfing, I don't know, could be, could be what they're doing. And we had a number of other people reach out to us on some of the things that uh, we've talked about in the last week. And guys, I know it's a, it's a holiday week for many of us. I don't know if you've seen, but uh, Consumer Reports says that marshmallow peeps the purple and pink ones have a carcinogen in the dye, dye number three. All I'm saying is, did anyone think peeps were healthy anyway? I didn't think you were supposed to eat them. Aren't they just to go in the microwave and explode? <laughs> you eat them once a year. Eat the peeps. Live I'm just life. glad that we get to hang out with my peeps here on the podcast. I don't know there about you eating go. the peeps. There oh. you go. Enjoy your peeps. Enjoy your uh, Enjoy your week, your weekend, guys. And with that, we'll close and we will see Manus back next week. Thanks to our producer, Haley Keen. Join us next week as we look at what's happened during the week and how it may be impacting you. If you have a question or a comment, 
send your email to podcast at trep.com and subscribe to the podcast with your favorite provider. Thank you for listening and stay well. All right. All right.